Thanks for being here. I appreciate you making the effort, literally making the effort to find this room and to be here. I, uh, I really do welcome your uh, presence here and your uh, feedback, either audibly or inaudible feedback. I, either kind is it's fine, but I am glad you're here. And as I kind of look, look out, I know some of these guys, and I know that they're, they're in full-time ministry, and we have an intern here, and we probably have um, various other pieces and parts of leadership in the church, and different roles in the church, whether it's members, ministry leaders, um, shepherds, whatever the case may be. I'm glad you're here, and I think what we're talking about will be relevant for all of us, certainly for those who are in church leadership, but I think as we look at this scene in Elijah's narrative, we will, um, we will see that it applies to all of us on some level. So, let me just ask you, do you think that you have ever felt, gone through, experienced, maybe even right now, burnout? Do you know what burnout is? I see a lot of nodding, a lot of nodding. Let me read you, this is interesting, you may not have heard the symptoms of burnout before. Let me read you the symptoms of burnout and see if any of these sound familiar. Chronic fatigue and lack of energy, trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, Forgetfulness, impaired concentration and attention. <laughs> Physical symptoms such as chest pains, shortness of breath, dizziness, headaches, gastrointestinal pain. That's a word you don't hear at every Bible lecture. <laughs> <laughs> Loss of appetite. That's when I knew. I was pretty worried about myself until I got to that one. I thought, no, I'm good. No, <laughs> don't, uh, I'm not experiencing burnout. <laughs> Anxiety, depression, possibly even anger, loss of enjoyment, pessimism, cynicism, I'm back on the radar now, isolation, irritability, and detachment. Now, obviously, those symptoms can be symptoms of a lot of different things, but I would suspect if you had three or four or five of those, you might be experiencing some level of burnout. And I think when we talk about burnout, maybe there are different levels and maybe different degrees of seriousness. But I think that those of us in ministry, those of us who aren't in full-time ministry, those of us who are involved in, in church, those of us who are managing families, taking care of elderly parents or children who are younger and have lots of needs, we know what burnout is. It's something that all of us can relate to. But as I thought about being a preacher, I thought about this cartoon, and I think many of us can relate to this. The preacher gets up and he says, the title of this week's sermon is, I just spent all week working on a sermon and I got nothing. <laughs> Those of us who preach can relate to that. <laughs> Those of you who do not preach, just know that your preacher probably feels this way occasionally. I think many of us get in the pulpit and we think, okay, Holy Spirit, when we're talking about the Holy Spirit this week, okay, Holy Spirit, let's go right now. And I can't remember who it was. Maybe, Jeremy, maybe you remember. Maybe it was Grady King. I can't remember. But someone said, I thought this was profound. The Holy Spirit works in preparation just as he works in proclamation. <laughs> so when you're preparing your sermon, the, the Spirit shows up there as well. Don't just rely on the Spirit when you stand in the pulpit. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly right. And so we probably on some level know what it means to be burned out, to be fatigued, to just need a break. 
it, it, something happened a while back that reminds me of, of, of sort of symbolically what happens as we uh, step into the role of leadership or ministry or preaching in a church and we bring with us all that life throws at us. Several years ago, it was a Saturday night, went to bed Sunday morning, I was going to preach, I got up early, I go in the bathroom and just like probably most of you, I turn on the lights and I look in the mirror and on my face are all these sleep lines. You know what sleep lines are, right? <laughs> you know, I don't just sleep on my back, I toss and turn. So I was sleeping on my face, you know, on my side or my stomach, the pillow, the sheets, whatever, made all these lines on my face. And I got nervous. I got to preach soon. I can't stand up in front of all those people with wrinkles on my face. I mean, yes, I have some wrinkles, but <laughs> not more wrinkles. And, and they were very severe. Um, and look at this face. I need all the help I can get. So I <laughs> did not need these sleep lines. I thought, I got to do something. Got to do something. And so I started thinking, how do you get rid of wrinkles? You iron your shirt to get rid of wrinkles. I didn't put my iron <laughs> Yeah, I could see him doing that. So I get in the shower. I take a washcloth. I turn the water on as hot as I can. And I get the washcloth under the hot water, get it nice and wet, and I start putting it on my face to sort of, you know, steam out, iron out the wrinkles. But this is a foolproof plan. This is a great idea. <laughs> and, you know, I don't have a mirror in there, and I can't see, but I'm assuming it's working, so I do it more and more, and I hold it there for quite a while, which, as you know, when you iron your shirt, you don't hold the iron in one place. Now I know that. <laughs> so I get out of the shower, I look in the mirror, and I have this red space, this red spot on my face. And I think, okay, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's hot water, it'll go away. It's like really red, like burned red. Like I burned my face with the hot water trying to get the wrinkles out of my face. And so I just said, well, you know, what do I do now? I can't do anything now. And so I go and I get up and I preach and I think no one noticed, but maybe they thought I was embarrassed or maybe they thought I was, I'd been in the sun the day before on one side of my face. But I just made the best of it. But as you think about that silly story, I think it relates to what us as church leaders, ministers, whatever role we have, even in the family, um, as we step into that role, that visible role, and we have to put on that happy face, and we have to say what we are supposed to say, and do what we are supposed to do, and we're supposed to lead others, and, and no one wants to hear about the things that have left imprints on our minds and our hearts over the week. No one wants to hear how we've been burned by that angry member who complained about this or that. No one wants to hear about all those things that we bring with us because they came to hear a sermon. They came to have the benefit of your leadership. And I think what many of us do is we just sort of stuff all of that down, sort of make the best of it, try to cover it up, put a mask on, iron out the wrinkles, whatever it is. We stand up there and we do our thing the best we can and then we go back and we aren't transparent. We don't make ourselves vulnerable at all because to many of us that means weakness. How do you lead out of a place of weakness, right? You need to lead out of a place of strength. And so we don't deal with many of those things that we bring with us and they, be, they begin to build up and they begin to fester, and the more we don't deal with them, the more that the potential for the explosion or the sort of decompression happens. And we experience burnout. We experience discouragement. And so many of you know what that's like. 
Let me just ask you a question here. I, I know I'll be behind on my slides, uh, but I'm going to try to stay up with them. I'm not used to doing my own slides. Let me just throw this out there to you. We'll, we're pretty informal here. Uh, what specifically leads to burnout from your perspective? And, I, and again, we have different roles in here. Some are ministers, some are uh, maybe shepherds or uh, spouses of ministers. You have a leadership role of some kind. In your arena, in your life, maybe it's family, maybe it's business, what are some specific things that lead to your own burnout? Whatever level of burnout that is, what are some of those things? Predetermined goals that I should be here oh. right now. And if I'm not, why not? What's going wrong? And if I'm not getting there fast enough, I get frustrated, burned out, challenged. Okay. So are these goals and this pressure comes from within, from yourself, or from external sources? Both. Okay. When I was, I was a fire captain, and we had like 15 seconds to start making a difference. Not fixing, right. but trust me, if you're inside the burning building, 15 seconds is way too long right. for the guys down there to get the wet up, up high <laughs> and, and make the, the hot stuff go away. And that was my mindset for 26 years. And then I started farming. It takes more than 15 seconds to fix a row of trees. And it was this whole new mindset of, come on, grow. What's going on, you guys? Yeah. It took two years, two and a half years, to get this one section on my orchard. Looking right, it's like, learn the patience, Paul. Take a breath. <laughs> You're not in the fire scene anymore. And the challenge, it felt like burnout. Yeah. Because it, it, to my... My environment wasn't responding in the way that I had determined should. Yeah, I think many of us can relate to that. You know, as a parent of young children, don't we sometimes get frustrated because our kids aren't doing what we want them to do, what we expect them to do? And on top of that, you have the pressure from, uh, you know, the other mom or the other dad at the park, and their kids seem perfect. And they come to church, and their kids don't have, you know, food all over their face, and their clothes are more or less on them. My kids were just doing good to get there. And so there's this expectation. In ministry, we stand up and we lead and we minister and we preach and we do all the things we do. And we have goals, right? We have certain goals that we want to hit. But these shepherds have goals. The church members have expectations. And we bring all of that with us. And we know that those things are there. And we often allow that to transform into pressure that is put on ourselves. And when things don't respond, when the environment doesn't respond, when people don't respond, when we don't do as well as we thought we should or could, that leads to burnout. Other things, other sources. Yeah? I'm a retired school teacher, and after teaching about 20 years, I realized that these kids were my children, and my children never progressed beyond teenagers. <laughs> yeah. And I found out that everybody was in charge of my class except me, and... Uh, even though I made a major difference through God's help, mm -hmm. absolutely through God's help, in a number of kids' lives, and, and everyone else got the credit for it, um, <laughs> I, I woke up one day and I said, I, it's the same thing again. I'm doing it the same thing again, starting from zero once again. And I just had no energy to do it anymore. Yeah. Sometimes the the repetition of doing the same thing and the lack, uh, what I heard you say a little bit is the lack of appreciation, the lack of support, the yeah. lack of affirmation. You know, we were kind of, some of us were joking about, you preach a sermon as a preacher one Sunday and guess what? 
There's another Sunday coming pretty soon, seven, day, seven days away. And people in pews want another sermon, and right? no one remembers the last one. Exactly, exactly. And the lack of appreciation, the lack of support, I think, is one of the leading sources of burnout and frustration. We all have something in us that wants to be affirmed, that needs to be affirmed. A couple more, yes? Yes. Sometimes being in a pulpit is a lonely place. Mm -hmm. So you feel alone even though you're in a crowd of people. And they said that uh, in life of a preacher, the most vulnerable time is the their first five minutes after you've stepped down out of the pulpit. And it, that tends to be when people come and bring stuff to you. And yeah. So you've given everything emotionally, and then you've got to react to things. It's hard. It is hard. It is hard because you're in a different place spiritually, mentally. Uh, the spirit you hope and pray has, has been working through you, and someone comes up and says, and this has happened to me, hey, the women's toilet is flooded. We need to do something right now. Do something. What are you going to do? Or, you know, something like that, which is understandable. Yes, we have to take care of that. But it's those, those moments that just get deflated that cause us sometimes to get deflated. Anybody else? Yeah. Uh, perception of or desire for control. Yeah. That's the for me. That's the has been the biggest cause of burnout. Yeah. Wanting to control the situation. And not being able and to. Not being or, able to, or it's just a perception that I was in control. It didn't go the way I went, and and that leading to disappointment or unmet expectations. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. How about just always being on call. Yeah. Yeah. Any. I never know exactly what I'm going to be doing this day. I think I do. Right. Yeah. Or this can, night. Or, it can change at 1030 or, yeah, or 11 o'clock at night. Yeah, we got home to our, our rent house the other night, and one of these guys got a phone call. And it was one of his members saying, I really need to talk to you. And it was a very serious situation with his mother. And, you know, what do you do? Sorry, I'm I'm in Malibu hanging out eating seafood. I can't really, <laughs> can't really talk to you right now. No, you call the guy and you... Go through what you need to go through. Yeah, so you're always on call. Mm -hmm. And you have to make choices about your time and being with family and what am I doing to my, when I say yes to this person, I'm saying no to these people, right? And those are difficult choices to make. Well, if you are currently or have ever or possibly sometime in your future will go through some tough days or a season of discouragement. I'm glad you're here because I think Elijah's story really has a lot to, to say to us uh, because when I read his story, it's so unexpected what he goes through. And I think we can relate to that. We call him the, the fiery prophet. But James tells us he's just a, he's just a guy. He's just a guy like you and, and me, just a person. And so that means, as we said yesterday, that he goes through some of the same struggles, the same temptations, the same issues, and, and maybe some of the same issues you just talked about. Now certainly the circumstances are different, but maybe those forces are very similar, pushing in on him. So we're going to spend some time thinking about uh, Elijah. As I was thinking about this, I, I sort of began to self-reflect on seasons that I've gone through, and, and uh, some of these guys in here were, were close friends, and we get together a couple of times a year, and they've heard me say, guys, I don't know if I can keep doing this. And we've heard each other say that. You know, I don't know if I can keep doing it here. I don't know if I can keep doing it at all. And I think that uh, we all can relate to that. I know I have gone through those, those seasons. 
And so when we think about Elijah's story, when we think about his life, we talked yesterday about how God sort of calls him to step up into the mess that's going on around him, to kind of step into the chaos. And really, he does it in a very, from our perspective, a very subtle way. He just sort of gives a weather report. He tells the king, Ahab, it's not going to rain unless God says it's going to rain. You think, well, that, well that's kind of a weird sermon. But as we talked about yesterday, Ahab is married to Jezebel. Jezebel's father is the one who brought in Baal worship. Baal is the god of the seasons. Baal is the god of the storm. Baal is the god of life and the harvest. And he is the one, in their minds, that brings rain. And now all of a sudden, this prophet of God stands up and says, no, no, God is the one who brings rain. And it's not going to rain unless he says it's going to rain. And so it's a direct challenge a direct defiant word against this false god. And you think, yeah, Elijah, that a boy. And then we have Elijah listening to and responding to the call of God as God commands him to sort of go into this secret place, this ravine, and be provided for by God in very strange ways. At least they seem strange to me, fed by ravens. <laughs> and the widow who has her oil and flour. and It's just kind of an odd story, but it tells us that Elijah is on board with God. Right? He is, he is tracking with God. God says, do this, do that. Well, I don't understand. That doesn't make sense. Birds are going to feed me? Just trust me. And Elijah seems to do that, right? And then we have the great story at Mount Carmel where he challenges the, the prophets of Baal and fire comes down from heaven to consume his, his altar, his sacrifice, clearly showing, after, after Baal's no-show, that God is truly God. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the mountaintop experience. It is one of those um, spiritual highs, we sometimes call them. And you think, all right, Elijah is on top of the world, right? He has this incredible highlight reel, these incredible experiences, these incredible acts of obedience. Uh, and you think, man, that's what I want to be like. But then something happens. Elijah comes down from the mountain and in many ways, he crashes and burns. And I think that's where we really connect with Elijah. He should be on top of the world. He has just won the Super Bowl of deities, right? The confetti is falling from the ceiling. The reporter saying, hey, you just won. Where are you going? I'm going to Disneyland, right? Or Disney World. <laughs> but it's not that way for Elijah. He comes down from the mountain, and he steps into a deep, dark valley. So let's look at 1 Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Now Ahab, remember that's the king whom Elijah was challenging, told Jezebel, his wife, everything Elijah had done. Challenging the prophets of Baal, Mount Carmel, all of that. He says, honey, you won't believe what happened today at work. <laughs> it was incredible, right? So he goes home and he tells Jezebel, how he killed all the prophets with the sword, which was directed by God to kill all these prophets of Baal. That part of the story makes us a little uncomfortable, but we're like, yeah, they're bad guys. They deserved it, so we'll get through that. And so he tells Jezebel all of this. Verse 2, so Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Talking about the prophets. It's a very Shakespearean way of saying, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> right? 
You're like, ah, oh, you don't know. You're messing with Jezebel. This is Elijah. This is the fiery prophet. He's the one that challenged your husband. He's the one that challenged the prophets of Baal. He's the one that called down fire from heaven. You don't know who you're messing with. And then look at the next verse. Verse 3. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Come on, Elijah. <laughs> really? But isn't that what many of us would do? How many times have I done that? Now, literally, maybe not running away, but how many times have I withdrawn from a conversation because it got too uncomfortable, because it put me in, in a weird spot, or because I had to speak up for what I believe in? How many times have I extracted myself from a situation um, that was just too difficult? Good things could happen in it. It was an opportunity for God to, uh, to be known, for his will to be known, but, yeah, get someone else. So Elijah is afraid and he runs for his life. Isn't it interesting how evil and Satan often attack us after the high, high moments, the mountaintop experiences, right after baptism, right after the birth of your child? Well, you know how that is. You go through that season of very difficult times some, sometimes, not always. Um, after the summer camp and mission trips, we, I guess I can say that, yeah. We... We uh, used to have this mission trip that we would go on to Mexico. And when we would come back on spring break, we would let the students and, and everyone on the trip spend a couple of days in San Antonio just to sort of unwind and relax. Well, many of our sponsors began to refer to San Antonio as Sin Antonio <laughs> because it seemed like after this great week of serving others and great times of worship and praise and confession, that Satan was just waiting for us right outside the Alamo. He was just waiting right there, <laughs> ready to attack our students, ready to put temptation right there. Uh, and, and, you know, obviously not all of them and not every year, but sometimes students just made bad choices. And you think, how could you do that? Don't you remember just a few days ago when we were circled around a campfire singing praises to God? Don't you remember pouring a, a concrete floor for those people who had nothing and you talked about how grateful you are to God for what you have. And now this. But that's how Satan often operates, doesn't he? It's always after those mountaintop experiences, it seems. You know, Jesus was baptized, this voice from heaven. His Father in heaven says, this is my Son, whom I love. And this wonderful voice of validation and affirmation. And then what happens next? He is ushered to the wilderness, to the desert, where he prepares for his ministry, and who shows up? Satan. Satan shows up. And that's often the way it is in our own lives as well. Elijah has just witnessed the undeniable sovereignty, the presence and the power of God at Mount Carmel. But those mem memories are, are quickly fading away. His spiritual dementia, you know. He can't remember what just happened. It is amazing how so often our circumstances can blind us to what God has done in our lives. We just forget. We just choose to forget. Sometimes in marriage and family therapy, they call this rewriting history. Right? So you reach a point where things aren't going well, and you look back. And I, I suspect the same thing can be said in ministry or in, in all arenas of life. We're at a certain point, maybe a job, right? And man, the job is just not going well. Today's a rough day. But you know what? Yesterday was rough. 
Last week, my boss was just all over me. You know, come to think of it, I remember four months ago when Joe, who is in the office next to me, comes over and he does this and does that. And we began to just sort of put a different spin on history. We rewrite history. And we do that in marriage, we do that in business, we do that in family, we do that in ministry and church. Because our circumstances currently, our difficult circumstances, began to, as we said earlier, that pressure begins to push in on us. And so it changes the way we think, the way we perceive. We began to perceive things in our past differently. Why do we do that? Because then that justifies me being angry or frustrating, or, or feeling frustrated. And then I can rationalize doing something, right? Doing something that I would maybe not normally do or say. Because after all, look at, look at all of this evidence, look at all this history that's leading up to that. And I don't know if that's what's going on with Elijah, but I do know he's just come down from the mountain where God showed up in a big way. And for whatever reason, because he's threatened by this king's wife, he is afraid and he runs. But here's the truth. We all know that life isn't lived on Mount Carmel. Right? You've got to come down from the mountain. And that's when life is sometimes messy and difficult and sometimes discouraging. And maybe that's where you are right now. Maybe you're in one of those dark valleys. Maybe you're coming out of one of those dark valleys. I, I hope that's the case. If you have one uh, that you're dealing with, I hope you're coming out of it. Uh, it's so easy to get overwhelmed by our circumstances. It really is. It's so easy to allow those things to press in on us. Or, in the case of Elijah, really, to be anxious about anticipated circumstances. He is truly afraid, I think, that he's going to lose his life. That that's what's going to happen. And so Elijah does what many of us tend to do in difficult times. What does he do? He runs. He escapes. Now, we escape in a lot of different ways, don't we? We probably all have our default escape. Or maybe one or two things. Maybe it's eating. Maybe it's shopping. Right? Maybe it's uh, gaming. Any gamers in here? You know? 30 hours straight. <laughs> Come out glazed. Uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's something um, a little more damaging. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's drugs. Excessive alcohol. For Elijah, it was literally to run. To escape. And so... It's interesting where he goes. Do you know where he goes? He goes all the way to the southern point of the southern kingdom. He goes all the way to the southern part of Judah. Verse 3, the second part of verse 3. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. Any red flags there? <laughs> hey, you stay right here. And I'm going to go by myself. You seem pretty discouraged, Elijah. Nah, fine. You just stay right here. I don't know if I should leave you alone. No, I'm fine. So Elijah says, I'm going on my own. You stay here. So he comes to this broom brush. He sits down under it. And he prays, listen to his prayer, <laughs> that he might die. He prays that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. I've had enough. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Remember all those kings, if you were here yesterday, all those kings we talked about. <laughs> all the people before him, not just the kings, but the people who have turned from God. He says, I'm no better than them. And he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. 
Do you remember the symptoms we read at the beginning? <laughs> Any of those apply to Elijah here? Yeah. Fatigue, anxiety, isolation, detachment, pessimism. He says, I've had enough. He prays that God would take his life. I hope and pray that you have never prayed that. But my guess is, if you haven't, you know someone who has. There is no greater level of hopelessness than to believe that dying is a better alternative than living in the struggle. But that is the reality for some people. That was Elijah's reality. God knew that. And God didn't want to leave him alone in his struggle. What a, what a word of gospel. What a word of good news. Elijah's in the midst of this incredible struggle, ready to lose his own life, and God doesn't leave him there. I mean, isn't that the gospel? We find ourselves in this incredible struggle with sin, one that we cannot control, one that we can't get the best of. And God sees us there, and he doesn't leave us there. He comes to our aid. That's what he does for Elijah. Verse 5. All at once an angel touched him. An angel. An angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. Isn't that interesting? That an angel brings him basically food delivery, right? Elijah wakes up. And there's food. He eats, he drinks, he goes back to sleep. Obviously, he was depleted emotionally, spiritually, maybe physically. He needed nourishment. He needed assurance. So God steps in and he gives him exactly what he needs. And so I think there's an important truth for us. And the truth is that we should embrace sabbatical. That we should follow the leading of God for his people and saying, you know what? We can't keep running. We can't keep being on call. We can't keep living with this constant pressure. We can't manage all these expectations on and on. We've got to extract ourselves from that. Pull away and say, I need some time with God. I need some time of nourishment. I need an angel to come along and bring me some food. And so whatever that sabbatical looks like for you, Maybe it truly is a sabbatical. I know some of you actually get a sabbatical from your elders, your shepherds, and they say, go take six weeks, go take a month, go take two weeks, take some books, take your Bible, pray, take your wife if you want to, if you're married, take your kids, whatever, but just get away and refuel and recharge. But maybe you're not a minister or maybe that doesn't apply to you. You can still build sabbatical into your routine. Maybe it's a weekly sabbatical. Maybe it's once a month. Maybe it's a week out of the year, or whatever it is, but you get outside of the normal routine. You remove yourself from the things that cause you to feel burned out. And you recharge through spiritual disciplines, through rest, through recreation. That is so important. And again, I don't know what it looks like for you. You have to sort of design that yourself in your context, but it is so important. In many ways, this is a mini-sabbatical mini that Elijah experiences here as God comes to his aid and provides for him. And so God provides food and drink. Elijah eats and drinks, and he goes back to sleep. And God wakes him up. Hey, 
hey, Elijah, you need to eat some more because I'm not done with you. And so he eats some more, and, and then he has the strength then for this 40-day journey. You know where he goes? He goes to Mount Horeb. We also call Mount Sinai. For Moses happened to spend 40 days and nights. This mountain of God. And so when Elijah found himself at rock bottom, wrecked by self-pity, discouraged through anxiety, what does he do? God picks him up and puts him back on the mountain. Literally. I'm reminded of the, the psalm that we often use at funerals, Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, remember Elijah's prayer? Lord, take my life. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. You're with me. Certainly God was with Elijah. He is with us. You need to know that God does not desert you in your darkest days. When you walk through those deep, dark valleys, you are not walking alone. Whatever that valley looks like for you, you need to know that God does not desert you in your darkest days. And I'm talking to you. And sometimes, many times, I'm listening, okay, what can I use to help others? I'm talking to you right now. God does not desert you in your darkest days. Whatever those look like, God is there. So back to our story, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 9. God's not done with Elijah. The word of the Lord came to him. I love what he says to Elijah. Elijah, what are you doing here? <laughs> what, what are you doing here, Elijah? And notice Elijah's reply. He still hasn't gotten it, right? He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. Yeah, you're talking to me. <laughs> the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Come on, Elijah. Spares the theatrics. I'm the only one left. Everyone's dying. They're coming after me. It is a bit exaggerated. But that's sort of what despair does, right? Again, we rewrite our history. We distort reality. Despair often causes us to distort reality. We don't see things clearly. We don't see things as they really are because we see them through our own lens of fear or anxiety or exhaustion or frustration or stress or whatever it might be. But it certainly feels that way sometimes, right? It feels like we're the only ones. Yeah, the other guys on staff, they just don't get it. The elders just don't get it. The preacher just doesn't get it, right? Those people in the pews are just not with me. I'm the only one who is trying to lead this church in the way God wants it to go. <laughs> it feels that way sometimes, doesn't it? Let's be honest. I've heard people say that. <laughs> exactly. But for Elijah, it's not even true. It's not even true. He evidently forgot about Obadiah. He forgot about the hundred faithful prophets that Obadiah is hiding. He forgot about this great revival on Mount Carmel where the people are like, oh, okay, maybe God is real. This, this shift, this turn that could lead to potential transformation among the community, he forgets all of that. But even if it was true, even if Elijah was the only one, he's not alone. I think that's what God wants him to know more than anything else. God is with him. God is with him. 
And God was with him when he confronted Ahab. God was with him when the ravens provided for him and the widow provided for him. And God was with him at Carmel where the fire came down. God was with him. But Elijah was blinded by his fear. And so fear is something that we need to recognize. Fear and anxiety. Let me go back. Fear and anxiety. Someone said this. Living with anxiety is like being followed by a voice. It knows all of your insecurities and uses them against you. It gets to the point when it's the loudest voice in the room. The only voice you can hear. That's what anxiety does. It becomes that loudest voice that begins to tell you, you can't do this. You're the only one. Everyone's after you. You're not good enough. That's what anxiety and fear do. They take up residence in our minds, in our hearts, and they begin to infiltrate. And they paralyze us with anxiety. And how do we respond? You know the classic responses. You fight. You flee. Or the latest one, you freeze. You fight. You flee. Or you freeze. And that's often how we respond when we are afraid. Because Elijah could have thought logically. You see, fear erases logic. Fear trumps logic. Elijah could have thought logically, yeah, God's with me, I'm not alone. But he couldn't do it. He couldn't let himself do it. And so what does God do? He shows up again. God gives Elijah what he needs most, himself. And God says, step out of the cave and I will make myself known to you. I love that. Elijah's in this very vulnerable spot. He's very anxious. And God says, I know what you need. You need me. You need assurance. And so you come on out of your fear. Come on out of your hiding. Come out of that cave. And I'll make myself known to you. Open your eyes. And we have this beautiful passage. I'm not going to take the time to read it. Uh, in, in chapter 19 of 1 Kings, you know the story. There is this great wind, this mighty rushing wind. There is this rumbling earthquake. And then there is this blazing fire. Pretty much sounds like a typical summer day in Oklahoma, where I'm from. But for Elijah, this was all uh, God working and showing himself to him. But you know what the text says also. God wasn't in those things. How did God show up? Whisper. Gentle whisper. A still small voice. And what did Elijah do when he heard that voice? He pulled his cloak over his face as an act of submission, an act of humility. He steps out of the cave. And God says, what are you doing here? <laughs> what are you doing here? You're so far from where you need to be. This is not where I want you. This is not where I have planned for you to be. You're on this holy mountain, but you're hiding in a cave, imprisoned by your own fear and anxiety living in this place of despair, that's not my calling for you. It's basically what God is saying, I think. And for us, he's saying, you stand in the pulpit every Sunday, or you lead that family every Monday and every week and every day, or you work in that job, but you're not where I have called you. Because you may stand in that pulpit, or you may lead that family, or you may do all those things, but inside, you are living in a cave of fear and insecurity. Elijah responds with the same speech he gave earlier. Wait a second, God. Don't you remember what's happened here? 
Your people are being killed, and I'm next. I'm the only one. And so what does God do? He prescribes the best medicine for self-pity. He says, get busy. i got a job for you. Elijah had taken a break. He'd had the season of rest, the sabbatical, but now it's time to get to work. And so what God does is we think that God might console him, but really God commissions him. We might expect and we might want for ourselves to God, for God to soothe us, but what God is doing with Elijah is he's sending him. And so back in the text, verse 15. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, or Snapchat, from Abel <laughs> Mahorla to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. What is God saying? You're not alone. I'm at work here. I'm still in control, and things are happening. And not only that, Elijah, I have work for you to do. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Yes, you need a time of sabbatical. You've been provided for. Enjoy that. Be refreshed. But I have work for you to do. Get to work. So he calls him to be a part of what God is doing. You're not alone. God is with you. God is working in and through you. And I believe the same is true for us. When you have had enough, I knew I'd be late on the slides, sorry. When you've had enough, you can either give up or you can look up. You can either give up and say, I can't do it anymore. I can't take it anymore. Too much pressure, too much stress, too many expectations. I'm the only one. I'm the only one trying, God. You can give up. Or you can look up and say, I'm not alone. God is with me. God is working in me, through me. God is calling me to join him in what he is doing. Let me just close with this, uh, what I think is a very inspiring story. I'm a huge college football fan. But my favorite story from college football this past season has nothing to do with football. It has everything to do with hope and inspiration and life. It's called the Iowa Wave. Do you know this story? Oh, I get a little emotional just thinking about it. So, University of Iowa, they built the Children's Hospital right there, as you can see, right outside the stadium. This woman who lives in a small town in Iowa, or maybe Missouri, I can't remember, she had this idea, she posted on Facebook, hey, wouldn't it be neat if at some point in the game, the people in the stadium look toward the hospital and just wave to the kids? The kids in this hospital are kids who are dealing with very severe illnesses, cancer, uh, people, children needing transplants, and just battling for their lives, truly battling for their lives. And so this thing just sort of took fire. And so every home game between the first and second quarter during that break, Everyone in that stadium, you say, well, that's neat, the fans do that. Not just the fans, the coaches, the home team, 
and many Saturdays, not just the home team, but the visiting team. Every person in that stadium looks up to that hospital where those children are fighting for their lives and their families are with them and they wave to those families and those kids. And if it's a night game, they turn their phones on, they turn the lights on, and you have these hundreds, thousands of little lights of hope shining up towards those kids. The very first kid in that hospital was a kid named Will Cohn. He was born with a heart defect and really was not doing well. He had several surgeries as a young child. He literally was the first kid in that, in that hospital when they finished construction. And he loved the Iowa wave. His dad was a huge Iowa football fan. And so they would take Will and uh, the other families would take the other kids up to the 12th floor into this lobby area right by the windows. And those kids would press their noses and their faces and their hands up against that glass waiting for that first quarter to end so that everyone would wave to them. Most of those kids, just like Will, couldn't stay and watch the rest of the game. They were too sick. They had to go back to the rooms, back to treatment. And so right after that second quarter would start, Will's parents would cart him back to his room and most of the other families would take their children, grandchildren, back to their rooms. And all you would see on these windows on the 12th floor was all these little smudges. <laughs> all these little smudges of the children longing for those points of light. Kids who were in the midst of death, literally. Kids who were dying. Kids who were fighting and struggling. Kids who had issues probably far more severe than most of us would deal with. And yet, that was a moment that gave them hope. That was a moment to let them know they weren't alone. I mean, can you imagine 65,000 people turning and telling you we're with you. You're not alone. We care about you. We need that. Now, most of us won't have 65,000 people doing that for us, but you have the one true light of hope. That is God. And he says, I'm with you. And I got work for you to do. So let's get to work. When you go through those seasons, when you walk through those valleys, know that you're not alone. God's with you. Be blessed. Let me pray over you before we go. Father God, we love you. And we thank you for being so patient with us. God, we drag ourselves through all kinds of messes in this life. Some of them are because we've made bad choices. Some of them because are because other people have made bad choices. Many of them are because of lots of forces and influences and choices. And We know we live in a broken world. And because this world is broken, we are the victims. We are those who suffer because and through the brokenness. But Father, through all of that, we need to know. And in moments like this, we do know that you are with us. We thank you for that. We thank you for not just providing for us the nourishment that we need in times of rest, in times of sabbatical, but for calling us, for telling each and every one in this room, in this place, in your kingdom, that you have work for us to do, that this job isn't over, that we have purpose, that we have meaning. And Father, we know that that's actually where hope is found, where joy is found, in doing things that truly matter 
in this life. So Father, call us, lead us, urge us, push us. Help us to step out in faith, get out of our caves and live for you. Father, we don't want to be where we don't belong. We want to be right in the middle of your will. So Father, help us to do that. We praise you and thank you for being with us. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you all.